The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's open our Bibles now to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 30. And this afternoon, our study finds us back inside the tabernacle to discuss the altar of incense, a small altar, but a very important symbol of Christ and his work of intercession for his people. Our text is chapter 30, and I'd like to read the first 10 verses, which are a description of the altar and instructions for Aaron to burn sweet incense on it. Now, the second portion of it is uh, verses 34 to 38. I'm not going to get to that this afternoon, so we'll look at those a little bit later in another message. If you look in uh, Exodus 30, verse number 1. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of acacia wood shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof and the sides thereof round about, and the horns thereof, and thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. Two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it by the two corners thereof, upon the sides of it shalt thou make it, and they shall be for places for the staves to bear it withal. And thou shalt make the staves of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations." Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt sacrifice, nor meat offering. Neither shall you pour drink offering thereon. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year, with the blood of the sin offering of atonements once in the year. Shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. This is the altar of the sanctuary, also called the golden altar, which distinguishes it from the brazen altar that's on the outside. And it's called golden because it represents the deity of Christ and that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. The altar was wood overlaid with gold, and we're very familiar with that symbolism. The wood represents Christ's humanity. That makes him the perfect bridge between us and God because he has the nature of both, both God and man. He is the God-man. And that duality enables him to identify with both God and man and that uh, he connects us to God through these two natures. Now, in the Revelation, we learn that this altar is associated with prayer. You remember the different furnishings of the tabernacle have a are made after a pattern of things that are in heaven. And in Revelation, the prototype of this altar is seen in chapter 9, where it says, And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. 
Now it's interesting that this altar is near to the throne of God. And in the sixth chapter in Revelation, the souls of the tribulation saints are seen under this altar where they plead for God to avenge them of their enemies that cause their deaths. Now, in the Psalms, we learn the connection between incense and prayer. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 141, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And so in heaven, there is also seen a connection. The one found in Revelation 5, which describes, it's in Revelation 5, that describes golden vials that are full of odors, or we would say full of incense, and these are the prayers of the saints. And so we see that connection. The connection of the altar to prayer is very clearly established. And from that connection, we develop this study along the course of the importance of prayer for New Testament Christians. Prayer is an integral part of our worship. And numerous times in Scripture, the, we're told to pray. We must communicate with God. And prayer is the means that God uses to accomplish His will in our lives. Now we started last time by discussing the prominence of prayer. As an act of worship, prayers to God are scattered throughout the Bible. There are many great prayers that were prayed by prominent people. We can read prayers of Abraham and prayers of Moses, prayers of David and Solomon and Ezra, just to name a few. But we also see their prayers on the level of ordinary people. People that knew that they were required to humble themselves before God and to pray to Him in order to obtain their desires. We see those prayers in the lives of people like Hannah, who was torn apart because she couldn't have a child and so she couldn't find her soul's fulfillment in being a mother. And then there are other prayers of just the common ordinary people like the captives that were in Babylon and they were sorrowed and they prayed about the loss of their temple and of their homeland and they wanted to return to Israel. And so God gave his people this gift of prayer. This is to say that they have his ear. God wants to hear from them because prayer is the acknowledgement that our help must come from God, that he controls what we are unable to control. So God handles the issues that we have no power to affect. God is immense. God can hear the prayers of his people from the smallest requests that we make to the outstandingly impossible ones. So it's appropriate then that in God's system of worship that he would make a symbol of prayer. And so he told the people to make a golden altar of incense and to place it in a prominent position in the tabernacle. Now, as we discussed that, we saw that the prominence of the altar is indicated by its position. That is the place where they put it. God showed them how prominent he wanted prayer to be by telling them to put this altar in the tabernacle. And he wanted it in a place where the significance would be seen. And so the position of the altar is directly in front of the veil that opened in to the Holy of Holies. And behind that curtain, there's the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. In the Holy of Holies is the place of God's glory in the brilliant light of the Shekinah. And the mercy seat, that is a type of God's throne. And just like the altar in heaven, the altar of incense is there directly in front of that veil, close to the throne or close to the mercy seat. And we talked about that. I don't have time to review all of it. Uh, if you didn't hear it, just go listen to the previous sermon because it is important for us to understand 
how God makes prayer prominent by showing it is close to his heart. And then next we saw the indication of power. The prominence of prayer is also indicated by the power of the altar. And that, and that power is, is symbolized by the horns that are on each of the corners. In Scripture, horns always indicate strength. And in prayer, God's strength is seen. Again, we think about the hopeless situations that we have, things that we can never control. All of that is within God's power. And so the intercessory work of Christ gives us power with God, but without Christ we could never approach God. I mean, anything that God does for us is not because of us, but because of Christ who lives in us. Uh, we, would, we would do well to learn how truly insignificant we are. Instead of thinking that we're something, the Bible says that we're nothing. Now, this, this is not a part of my message, but I thought as I, as I was going to make this point that I... I always I say these things, things like that uh, many, many times, how that if God is everything, we're nothing. And you might get the impression that sometimes I'm saying, well, human beings are worth nothing, that they have no value at all to God. It's not what I mean at all. I mean that without Christ, we're nothing, and everything that we are is in Christ. And so when we are in Christ, then certainly we are good, we are righteous, we are valuable in one sense of the word to God because we're the ones that he uses to do his work in this world. So I don't mean that Christians ought not to have any self-esteem, but I want us all to recognize that the basis of that esteem, the underlying reason that we have it, is because of Jesus Christ, not us. It's what he gives to us. So the Bible says then, in this vein though, we are insignificant, we need to think about that, we are nothing but this, we exist for God's glory, and without our, that our lives have no purpose. And so when you live as a Christian, obeying Christ, then you have purpose, and that purpose is for God's glory, and that's exactly what God wants you for. That, that makes you valuable in God's sight. Now James told us then to consider Elijah and the power that he had with God through prayer. Uh, we don't have cause to do what Elijah did. In James' example, he talks about how Elijah prayed and, and it didn't rain. Well, you and I don't have any reason to stop the rain. And that's not the point of that passage anyway. It's not that if you pray, you can stop the rain. But the purpose of it is to show if man's prayers could do that. If praying the way that God wants us to, if we have the power to do that, then there's nothing that we can't do. God takes care of every concern that we have. If it's in the will of God, he'll take care of every need that we have. So God wants his people to pray because he uses that trust in him indicated by our dependence on him in prayer to do for us and also to accomplish his purposes. So that's last week's message. Now we need to move on to this next consideration. Our second observation is the presentation of prayer. And we would do well to note again that in tabernacle worship, the tabernacle was designed for God's chosen people. The place of worship and the symbols of Christ were not shared with heathen nations that were around Israel. In fact, as you know, God told Israel to drive out all others, drive out the people, the Canaanites that were in the land, because the tendency with all of them would be to pervert worship and corrupt worship by their heathen practices. And so when the priests made atonement, 
when he sprinkled blood on the horns of the altar, or when he went behind the veil with the blood, and when he went to the mercy seat, not one time do we read in Scripture that he was told to offer an offering for Moabites, for Canaanites, or for any others except those of Israel. And there were many moving pieces that had to happen before the priest came to this altar. In the courtyard, there was the brazen altar. A sacrifice must be made there first. The blood is collected. And then the priest had to wash in the golden laver. He had to pass through the door of entrance into the tabernacle. Had to light the golden lampstand to see by the light of it. He had to place the bread on the table of showbread. And what we see in this is that there's always order, there's always commitment, there is always faithfulness that must happen before our prayers go up to God. There is a protocol for prayer. And seeing that the sacrifice of Christ must come first, there is no one who can approach God unless all of this preliminary work has been done. Now I want us to see this first then. There is a relationship between prayer and sacrifice. Prayer is related to sacrifice. If I take you back for just a moment to the Garden of Eden, Adam lost his communication with God. Adam was afraid of God after he sinned. His disobedience shattered that close fellowship with his Creator so that Adam didn't want to talk with God. He wanted to avoid Him. So what did it take then for Adam's relationship to be restored? What was it that enabled him to fellowship again? Well, it took sacrifice, not his sacrifice, but a sacrifice that God made for him. Then the necessity of sacrifice is also seen in the preparations that Noah made when he took the animals into the ark. God made sure to tell Noah that he needs seven. He needed seven of each of the clean animals because those would be used for sacrifice. Well, why do you need seven of those? Because there would be so many sacrifices. There's not much that was done without blood sacrifices. And so that picture holds true in the tabernacle. There's always these sacrifices that are going on. Much, much blood that was shed. Outside in the courtyard, there is the brazen altar. Each head of the family brought his animal for sacrifice. And that's because none, none are represented inside the tabernacle without the blood that's shed on the outside of the tabernacle. And so that showed that God would not permit anyone to approach him without blood. So the golden altar with its horns just before the veil where it sits there, the priest could not go into God's presence without going to that golden altar first. And as good Christians, I don't think we really need much of an explanation of that. We know that the blood that's placed there relates to the blood of the cross I don't really need to spend time explaining to you what you as Christians who've been through this study know so well, but I'm certain that what we're talking about here is not common knowledge of most people. I think there was a time in our country when more people knew what we were talking about when we made comments like this. Even if they weren't Christians, they knew something about what we were talking about. But that time is quickly fading away. I read an article recently about Chris Pratt. Anybody know who Chris Pratt is? You've heard of him? Okay. He's an actor. He claims to be a Christian. I can't testify to his true conversion because we've all seen Hollywood stars that for some reason or another said they had faith in Christ. 
But I also know that there are people that are saved and they can be saved without mature faith. None of us has a mature faith when we come to faith in Christ. New Christians don't know all that you know. New Christians don't do all that you do. They're still weak and perhaps there are inconsistencies in some of the things that Chris Pratt does that shows he has an imperfect faith. But I found it interesting what he said in an acceptance speech when he was was given an award from MTV. Now, none of us would think that MTV is an appropriate venue for a Christian. But this is what he said in his speech. Nobody is perfect. People are going to tell you you're perfect just the way you are. You're not. You are imperfect. You always will be. But there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you're willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. And like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for with somebody else's blood. Don't forget it. Don't take it for granted. Now we hear that, and I'm sure that we could criticize Chris Pratt for referring to God as a force. We can criticize him for a gospel presentation that fails to mention Christ. I'm not sure that we should, considering his weaknesses and the obvious struggles that he must have to speak in just a very brief time, something that most people would just dismiss out of hand. And this is exactly what happens to you uh, when you're when you're talk to people about Christ. Uh, some people just turn you off. They call you a fanatic. So I don't know all of his reasons, but I'm certain of this, that when he said grace was paid for with somebody else's blood, his reference was unmistakable. We know who he's talking about. Uh, Pratt's message is that you won't make it. You'll not be what you should be without the perfect grace of God bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the world all too easily bypasses the blood of Christ. It's no wonder they do. If it's not that they're just purely secular and they've never heard of it, it's for another cause. Because many of them have religion. They may even attend churches that have Christian over the door. But these are people that have been taught by liberal pastors, by theologians that doubt the efficacy of Christ's blood. Even some who, in, in some ways, may be considered orthodox, at least to some degree, deny Christ's blood was the literal payment of our sins. I mean, you can find that attitude even among those that are called orthodox Christians. Blood stands for death, and so they say, well, the death of Christ has really nothing at all to do with what Pratt said. Now, Chris Pratt is a Christian that makes him, in his weakness, a better theologian than many who have five theological degrees after their name. He said grace was paid for by somebody else's blood. And we, we say that grace is free, don't we? It is free to us, but there aren't any free li- rides in life. Bernie says, free Medicare for all. You look at your pay stub each week and then say Medicare is free. Somebody paid for it. Somebody always pays for everything received. And the grace of God in salvation was bought and paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ. It was not free to him. Now prayer rests on the fact that Christ shed his blood. And without that blood there isn't any access to the Father. And so when a theologian cuts uh, the blood out of the Bible, then he loses all access to God. 
Now, if this is true, and the Bible says it's true, I believe it is, then the next point logically and theologically follows. The next point is that prayer is reserved for the saved. Now, like Israel in the Old Testament, the approach of God, the approach to God is only for God's people. So how would we uh, dare think that a, that a Moabite who has no part with Israel's God could come and pray? You're not going to see Moabites in the tabernacle. Prayer is reserved for those who come by the blood of Christ. I've been asked many times, how is it possible then that a lost person could pray for his salvation? Now, that's not a dilemma for most because they won't ask the question. They don't think about such things. They don't understand the implications of such things. But I believe in an ordinary sense that if you're an unbeliever, Everybody in here, I think, is a believer. But if you were an unbeliever, I think it would be best to ask a saved person to pray for you. And that's because you would have no access to God. But if we're talking about salvation, there isn't a prayer for salvation that is genuine, that isn't directed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, one that's uh, the Holy Spirit's already working in the heart of a person to regenerate and bring that person to repentance and faith because nobody wants to pray for salvation who hasn't been radically changed to have a desire for that salvation. And so you take these soul-winning techniques that rapidly push people to pray the sinner's prayer. These are people that are guilty of bypassing the necessary work of the Holy Spirit. Now, when the Holy Spirit works, we don't need to beg people to pray prayers. And those prayers will be useless unless the Holy Spirit has led that person to prayer. Now, that has all sorts of implications for our doctrine. I I, I don't have time to explore all those subjects tonight. They're not in the scope of this message. But I'm only answering the question, how is it possible that a lost person can pray a prayer of salvation. And that's how it's possible. The Holy Spirit must already be working in his heart to lead him into that prayer. So moving on from that dilemma, we go back to ordinary circumstances. Does anyone and everyone have the right to pray? Will God hear you if you haven't trusted Christ for salvation? Well, the Bible teaches that if God did, he would trample the blood of his own son. God would have required blood from him when no blood is required. And that makes God a tyrant, not a gracious God. But this is, a, this is a part of what those who don't know about the requirement of blood never see. The lost person will go to the hospital. He'll visit his dying mother, sit beside her bedside, cry tears, beg God to save her life. Does God hear his prayer? Does he have the right to pray? On what basis does he have a right to plead with God? Well, the truth is, without Christ, there are no divine rights. The priest couldn't bypass the altar of incense. He can't bypass the altar of intercession, then barge behind the veil into the presence of God at the mercy seat. That would be suicide for him. Now, we're used to hearing, though, Everybody is a child of God. We're used to hearing about the universal fatherhood of God. Everybody is a child. God wants to hear from us all. I think you know the answer to that. Jesus told the wicked people in his time, You are of your father, the devil. 
There is no relationship with God without the shedding of blood to cover our sins and to hide our unholiness from God's holiness. But we hear all sorts of prayers. We hear public prayers prayed without mentioning Christ because it's considered to be offensive today. If you pray in the name of Jesus Christ, pray a public prayer that way, it's offensive because how are you going to include the Jews? How will you include Muslims? How will you include uh, Hindus and a hundred others? How, how do you include all these people in the crowd if you come in the name of Christ? And so in our country, the generic prayer was born. No one in our country at one time would ever think of praying without the name of Jesus Christ. But now we do. People pray all the time without the name of Christ. It's a very simple thing, what, what's going on. That is, they pray to gods that are no gods. The Canaanites prayed to gods that weren't gods. Paul said, an idol is nothing in the world because it's not a god. And then he goes even further. He said, those who worship their idols, or in essence, those who worship and pray without Jesus Christ, worship demons. That's kind of tough, isn't it? Tell people that if they don't come in the name of Christ, they worship demons. But that fits the scriptures because Jesus said people without Christ and live that way and go on that way are of their father, the devil. So it's the demons that lead them into prayer. Now we needn't think that the person who prays without Christ, even if he thinks that he's praying to the father, fares any better than an idol worshiper. When in fact he's not better than an idol worshiper, he is an idol worshiper. It's because he made a god of his own imagination. He has a God that doesn't require blood. He has a God that doesn't require repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And very simply, the scripture says that is no God at all. Now, the emblem of a false approach to God is found in this text. It's in verse number 9. Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon. Now, we've noted incense is representative of prayer. So we would as easily say, ye shall offer no strange prayer thereon. What is a strange prayer? It's one that's not recognized by God. It's an approach to God that's not sanctioned. The only approach to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, thirdly, in the presentation of prayer, prayer is a reminder of sin. Prayer reminds us that the original approach to God was broken by sin. Now again, Adam lost his free access to God because of sin. So an altar where blood must be applied for intercession, that is an indicator there is something that is very seriously wrong. An altar standing outside the veil where God is reminds us, reminds the priest that he can't approach God without the confession of sin. He can't be an intercessor for the people unless he has acknowledged his sin. And so this is what the priest would do. First, he would make an offering for his sins before he offered for the people. Now the wonderful thing, though, about the priesthood of Christ that makes him different from the Aaronic priesthood and a better priest than the Levitical priest is that he didn't need to offer first for his sin. He had none. There was nothing in the death of the cross about his own sin. But the scripture says he was made sin for us. Hebrews 7 verses 26 and 27. For such an high priest became us who is holy, 
harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Well, the altar of intercession represents Christ, who is the better priest. He's better than the Levitical priest, who came to this altar with incense, with blood, and carrying that blood as the acknowledgement he was a sinful man. In an earlier lesson, we talked about uh, the floor of the tabernacle, how that it had no covering. The floor was just the dirt and the sand of the desert. Outside, in the courtyard, the priests walked on desert sands. Priests were always getting dirty in their service, so they had to go to the laver to wash before they entered the tabernacle. There was no hope of perfection for a Levitical priest, and thus he approached this altar knowing very well the imperfections of his life. And so with the blood, he admitted his sin. And that takes us back to letter B. The person who tries to pray around Christ, pray without him, get around Christ, doesn't admit his sin. He doesn't admit that Christ is perfect. He doesn't admit that God is holy. He doesn't admit that God will not permit sin in his presence. And God does not hear except for the perfect Christ who stands in our place. Now the greatest preacher saved Jesus Christ himself, I believe, was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle never claimed that he was worthy to approach God. In Romans seven eighteen, he said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. In this life, Paul knew that he would be nothing other, nothing more than a sinner saved by grace who found himself always in prayer, needing to pray, always preaching about prayer, telling us, telling churches to do what he did, pray without ceasing. Why do we pray without ceasing? Well, because we're always sinful. We're always sinful. And the only help that we have is from God. Now, an interesting command regarding this is in verse 8 of our text. Exodus 30, verse 8. And when Aaron lighteth, the lamb sat even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Perpetual incense was needed. This means perpetual, perpetual intercession is needed. Perpetual prayers are needed because the children of God sin daily. God's children walk on desert sands. We get dirty. Well, how is it then that the sins that dirty us every day don't condemn us? Why don't these sins cause us to lose our salvation? I mean, the only thing that could ever separate us from God would be sin. Once you're saved, the only thing that could separate you would be sin. And sin is a thing that separated us before, so why doesn't it now? Well, Hebrews answers that question according to the altar of incense. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ always lives to make intercession for us. Paul accentuated that statement with this theological maxim in Romans 5, verse 10. He said, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We are reconciled by Christ's death. That's the payment of the penalty. And now that we are reconciled, Paul said, we are saved by his life. What did he mean? 
Which life did he mean? Well, as he was a man on earth, we're saved by Christ's life according to the merits of living in perfection. He imparted his, uh, imputed his perfect obedience to us. And that's gloriously true. That's a great truth that we stand on in the Bible and mention it often. But that's not Paul's meaning. Now notice the life in Romans 5.10 is after his death. This is not his life before. So Paul means his present life in heaven where he continues to make intercession for us. So when we sin, Christ is there to say to the Father that we are reconciled, that all of these sins have been placed upon his account. He was charged with those sins and he paid for those sins. Scripture says we are saved to the uttermost because Christ lives to make intercession for us. And here, here is the root of our doctrines of perseverance and preservation, anchored in these timeless truths of types and figures that are fulfilled in uh, Jesus Christ. Types and figures of the tabernacle that Jesus fulfilled. Now I'll tell you that, quite frankly, that much of our doctrine, things that we teach here in Berean, are denied because naysayers don't understand these Old Testament pictures. But what we find are foundational precedents for believing the doctrines of total depravity and, and unconditional election, particular redemption, effectual grace, and preservation and perseverance of God's people. Now, returning to confession of sin, we can expect God will honor our prayers because of confession of our sins. Now, our relationship with God can never be broken. But Scripture teaches that sin hinders fellowship with Him. And it's within that fellowship with God. This is the place where we find our prayers are answered. Now, it's important to note that when the Apostle John wrote about fellowship in 1 John, he was writing to save people. He wasn't writing to those who, who hadn't repented, who, who needed faith to obtain their salvation. And so we turn to 1 John, if you would, and, and we'll look there and we'll just read a few verses about what John says about sin and fellowship. John begins the first chapter talking about the deity and the humanity of Christ. His address in verse number 4 is to those whose joy will be made full by understanding what he's about to say. In verse number 5, his message is about God's holiness, that God is light, there is no darkness, or is there's, there's no sin in him. Now, bearing in mind that the address here in, in 1 John is to born-again believers, he speaks of their fellowship. And how is this fellowship with God broken? It's broken by walking in darkness, that is, living in sin. So, in 1 John 1, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him... And walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Again, talking to save people. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. These are Christians, and he says we all have sin in us. We can't claim that we don't sin, because if we did, then we would deny what God says about us. What does he say about our nature? We're all sinners. But all's not lost here uh, because of sin. Loss of fellowship is not a permanent condition. Why? 
because we can come to God and confess our sins. And there's only one way that you can confess sin. How do you do it? You've got to pray. You've got to talk to God. You don't go talk to a priest because you are God's priest. You're that sinful priest of the tabernacle that has to come to the altar of incense with prayers acknowledging your sins. And then what happens? God is faithful to cleanse us from sin, forgive us, restore us to fellowship. So far from talking about what some people do, that you could become sinlessly perfect, we know our lives are filled with dirt and defilement. Every sin has to be forgiven for fellowship. And I hope that we give that understanding when we have our confessional prayer on Sunday mornings, that we're not going to worship. We won't fellowship with God without confession. We also practice that before we take the Lord's Supper. The Supper is communion with God's people, but that's just secondary to the main purpose. It's first about communion with Christ, and we will not commune with Christ unless our sin is confessed. David said, Psalm 66, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. And that's really the point that I'm trying to drive home today. God hears. God attends to the voice of his people. God will not turn his ear from us. He will not hide his mercy from us. When? When we confess the sin that's in our hearts. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So the priest was reminded of sin when he came to the altar. And as priest, as a holy nation of priests, we are reminded to confess and forsake our sins. The presentation of prayer is dependent upon the sacrificial blood of Christ. Uh, it, it's presentable to God. Our prayers are presentable only when they're offered by His blood, by His blood-bought people. And then, it's only when we are careful to confess all of our sins to the Holy God. Scripture says Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, that we can stand here and pray to you. You want to hear us. We are your children. You've granted access. We thank you for that, Lord, and that access is only by Jesus Christ who died, who gave his life for us, who shed his blood to cover all of our sins. Help us, Lord, to see that, recognize that, and to know each and every day before we do anything that we need to confess our sins. As soon as we are aware that we've sinned against you, this is what we should do. We should come to the, to the altar, come to the altar of incense and confess our sins to you. Thank you, Lord, for your work. Thank you for bringing us here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 
888-949-9428. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.